We're going to be in John 3. So if you want to turn there now, we're going to get right to it here in just a second. But let me just say this. Please forgive me in advance <clears throat> my allergies. How many people are experiencing allergies right now? Allergies hit me just two days ago. Finally, it was, I knew it was coming. It's sort of like that, you know, that dentist appointment that you know you got to go to and you're just hoping to avoid it. Like, maybe if I just don't show up. Anyway, uh, that's where I'm at. And so uh, forgive me if I'm coughing and hacking and all kinds of weird things. But today we're going to look at uh, maybe, as Pastor Kelly said, the most famous uh, passage, definitely the most famous verse in my opinion, and one of the most telling interactions that Jesus has in his early earthly ministry. John 3 is actually the 1,000th chapter in the Bible. I didn't know that. That's pretty amazing. I counted, actually. That's what I've been doing all week. I literally barely made... No, I'm just kidding. Uh, it's 1,000th chapter in the Bible. I read that from people who are smarter than me, so if it's wrong, then blame them. Uh, and it contains an interaction, uh, two interactions that Jesus has with two very different but very important people. Today, we're only going to look at the first one. Uh, we're going to look at the interaction that he has with a man named Nicodemus. Uh, and we'll get to know Nicodemus here in a second. And I say only, but honestly, uh, we're going to have a hard time getting to everything that's great about this passage. So that's why we're going to dive right in, okay? So we're going to read the first few verses here, talk about it a little bit, read a few more, talk about it, read a few more, and then we'll, we'll wrap up there. So John chapter 3, verse 1 says this. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. So we meet this man named Nicodemus. Uh, and translated into the Greek, it's actually uh, two parts, Nikos, which is victory, and Demos, which is uh, the people. So kind of an interesting name, sort of a powerhouse name. And it kind of plays out into his life. Uh, he is likely, scholars would uh, say that he's likely a very influential lay leader, not necessarily a chief priest. Uh, so while he is a Pharisee, he's actually more of a, you know, he's not working uh, necessarily in official capacity. He's just a very influential person. The Talmud says that he is actually uh, one of the four richest people in Jerusalem, which is like the, the written history, written authority on Jewish history. So as you can see, the person that we're going to talk about today, the, interact the, the interactee with Jesus, is indeed an influential and smart person. But something is interesting about this, right? He goes to meet Jesus, as we notice, he meets him at night, and there's a lot of discussion around why he meets him at night, but I think we're, uh, we're just going to, without speculation, we're going to land on the idea that it was either too hot during the day, which is of zero significance, right, or probably more likely the fact that Jesus had just got done, as we talked about last week, clearing out the temple, and he did so in a way that kind of ruffled some feathers, and the feathers being ruffled belonged to Nicodemus's people, 
They were his peeps. And so he's like, I got to meet this Jesus guy, but no one's going to be super happy about it. So let me go meet him at night. And the reason why he does so, um, he's, he's probably a little nervous about it, but he knows that this is too much, uh, there's too much at stake because he realizes something special about Jesus. So he starts out the conversation and he acknowledges that Jesus was indeed a man sent from God, that God was with him. And he even calls him rabbi. Now to us, we're like, okay, well, okay, big deal. I know that term, but but to Nicodemus, that would have been the highest form of praise to someone who was a teacher of God's word, right? He was basically saying, like, you are incredibly smart. You are well-known, well-read. You understand what's happening. And to think about that, there is very little that we know about Jesus at this point, but, but Nicodemus believes that there's something special. So Jesus gets this, you know, he praises Jesus, he says, you're a wise man, you're, you're, you know, he calls him rabbi, but Jesus doesn't really play to that. He just goes right into what he's trying to convince Nicodemus of. He says, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You're like, wait, what did he just say? You know, Nicodemus' response, of course, is that. Uh, what? Be born again? How can I possibly do that, right? Uh, how can a 32-year-old man like myself uh, crawl back into my mother's womb? Now, the idea sounds crazy. The imagery is just flat out wrong. Am I right? Like, you know, like Nicodemus is like, what in the world? I just sat down, I took this risk, and Jesus is telling me to do What? And you can almost imagine like Jesus' response. Like he says this thing, and of course, Jesus being Jesus, sometimes I feel like he just did things to really mess with the religious people. So you know he's just kind of sitting there with a smirk, like, do you, do you think that's what I meant? Do you think when I said that, I was implying that you would do that, Nicodemus? Stop interrupting me, and let me tell you what I'm going to tell you. So then he continues to explain what it means to be born again. He says, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Humans can reproduce human life, but only, hum but only the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. Now, that particular part right there also has some interesting connections, right? To be born of water and of spirit, and there's a lot of different ideas on what that is. But the big idea really is, is that the, there is both a spiritual and a physical birth, and they're separate events. So Jesus is starting to get at the root of what's significant. He makes this bold statement, and it's really important. And Nicodemus is probably at this point going, okay, where is he going with this? Um, essentially, what he's saying is life without the Holy Spirit is not life at all. That you can be physically alive, and you can even be a spiritual person, a religious person, in fact, like Nicodemus was, but unless you have the Holy Spirit in you, you are dead. That's the first bold claim that Jesus makes in this passage. Uh, listen to the words of Ephesians 2. They, they sort of uh, reiterate what Jesus is teaching here. Uh, we're going to read verses 1 and 2 and then 4 and 5. It says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. That's essentially what Jesus said. In, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Essentially saying you, you had a, a wrongful spirit working in your life. But, in verse 4, it says, But because of his great love, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions, which that'll play out significantly here in a moment. 
It is, in, it is by grace that you have been saved. So if you're like me, you're reading this section, and you, you read that interaction that Jesus is having with Nicodemus, you read this passage, and it sort of makes me wonder, um, it, it, some, some, it poses some questions that I have. And, and we're going to talk about these here for just a brief moment. And I will admit, they're a little bit more into the theological weeds than we normally get, but they're significant to this interaction. So that's why we're diving in. Basically, what Jesus is saying is, if you are dead without the Spirit, right? If you don't have the Spirit in you, even though you're physically alive, you're spiritually dead. How do we know that there is a Spirit that we need? If we are dead, how can we possibly know that we're dead? Of course, the answer is we don't, right? And that's what Jesus is trying to get at at this point. He's basically saying to people like Nicodemus, like, you, you don't understand. What I'm going to tell you here in a moment is hard for someone. It's actually impossible for someone who doesn't have the spirit in them to understand. So, of course, you won't get it, which we'll, we'll read about in just a second. But it gives me two questions that I sort of want to internalize. These are more for just your benefit throughout the week. I want you to ask these questions of yourself. The first one is this. If we don't know that we're dead until we are alive, again, speaking spiritually, if we don't know that we are dead until we are alive, how can we possibly, we being the people who do have the Spirit of God in us, how can we possibly expect people who don't to understand that and to live by the standard with which we live? You think about that for a second, right? Jesus is telling Nicodemus, he's like, without the spirit in you, you are dead. And Nicodemus is like, okay. And he's probably saying to Nicodemus, um, that applies to you as well, right? Like he, he's sort of picking at, at Nicodemus at this point. He's, he's almost taunting him, but Nicodemus doesn't understand it because he doesn't know that Jesus is talking about him. He, in his religious nature, just thinks he's talking about other people who aren't religious. But Jesus is saying, no, you can be alive physically, you can be spiritual, you can be religious, you can be all the things that you want to be without the Holy Spirit, you are dead inside. You are dead inside. And so that, that lays kind of the foundation for this whole conversation that Jesus has. Then the second question that it caused me to ask is, ask is again, if I don't know that I'm dead without the Spirit, right? If I, if I don't know that I'm like Nicodemus at this point, I don't necessarily have the Spirit of God in me, then did I choose God or did God choose me? Again, sort of a theological weeds kind of question, but significant because Nicodemus thinks that he's nailing it. He thinks that he's right on where he should be by following all the rules of religion. Now, if you grew up in a tradition like I did, this is how you chose God. You went to church, they had an altar call, you raised your hand, and you chose God, right? That's just how it is. But here's why that's hard for me. Most of my friends uh, did and still do not want to have anything with have anything to do with church. That's just a prevailing trend amongst people who are not Christians. Um, so if they have to be convinced to a go to church, then to raise their hand and then to choose God, that seems like a lot of work on my behalf, right? That seems like a lot of weight to carry. But Jesus is actually painting a different picture here. He's, he's painting a picture that when someone chooses God, they're actually just recognizing the work of the Holy Spirit in their life. That God, from before they even knew it, was actually wooing them 
much like he was doing to Nicodemus, right? Like, why was Nicodemus compelled to go talk to Jesus? Right? That's the thing. Like, he, he probably wouldn't have recognized it, but Jesus is trying to say, the Holy Spirit is doing something here. And it's an incredible feeling to me because before I was even aware of it, before you were even aware of it, God was doing things in your life through the scripture, through people around you, through your Sunday school teachers, through your neighbors, through your family members. He was wooing you into choosing him. So I beg the question again, did I choose God or did God choose me? And then he caps it off with this verse that kind of explains something that makes sense out of a situation that doesn't make sense. He says, the wind blows wherever it wants. Just as you can hear the wind but can't tell where it comes from or where it is going, so you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. So if we're dead without the Holy Spirit but alive with the Holy Spirit, then we have this tendency, right, that we're like, okay, I want to control it. But Jesus is saying, you, you have no idea. You don't know where it's coming from. You don't know where it's going. But the Holy Spirit will do what the Holy Spirit does. And I want to just pause right here. And I want to say something about the Holy Spirit because it's not a topic that we talk about a ton. Um, but obviously, it's significant. It's significant to Jesus. It's significant to us. The experiences and the exposure... Uh, to the Holy Spirit uh, for each and every person in this room is probably all over the board. That's going to be true about every church, whether it be our, our, our newness to the faith or our maturity in the faith or our past experiences, uh, some kind of combination of both. We all kind of have our own story in relationship to the Holy Spirit. But I will say this, um, center church and all that we do is contingent upon the sub, the, is subject to the power and the work of the Holy Spirit, specifically in the lives of each and every person here. Everything we do is subject to the will and power of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. Jesus told us at the end of his earthly ministry that we would receive an advocate and a helper to further the ministry that he started, that he initiated with his life, death, and resurrection, the church. He gave us the Holy Spirit to be our helper, and so the Holy Spirit is alive and at work in each and every person who calls Jesus Lord. And we are incredibly privileged to have what we have in this community, and I, and I believe this wholeheartedly, that the Holy Spirit is at work in each and every person here. He's at work in prompting you to do something, to, to the call to follow him, to make a difference, to do something inside of you that is beyond your control and beyond your capacity. And I know this from personal experience. He's poking and he's prodding at me all the time to do things that just might not make sense, but are totally subject to the will and the power of the Holy Spirit. So you're saying to yourself, maybe if, if you're like me and you're sort of like, well, okay, uh, what does it look like? What does it feel like to have the Holy Spirit work in your life? Well, I'll start with this. It's almost as impossible, well, I would say it's as impossible to explain it in enough detail with enough clarity um, as it would be to try to articulate an experience to somebody. That's what I would compare it to, right? 
Have you ever been to a concert that you were so psyched about, and then you try to tell your friend, you're like, dude, it was so awesome. They did this and this, and, and then your friend's like, okay, sounds great. Wish I was there, right? But I wasn't, so, right? You, or, or like, this one was a big one for me. How about trying to explain what it's like to have children, <laughs> right? There, there is no amount of perfect wording and writing and oratory explanation that could have convinced me what God would do in my life the moment I became a dad. It's just impossible to explain that experience. And I will say that that is also the truth for the Holy Spirit. It's, it's almost impossible for each and every one of us to, to explain to someone else what the Holy Spirit has done and is doing in their life. So what do we have to do? We have to trust. We have to trust that what Jesus says is true. That we can't predict where it's coming from or where it's going. We just have to know that people will be born of the Spirit and that He will indeed work in our lives. So let me just give you these two encouragements about the Holy Spirit and then we'll move on. In fact, I would love for you to write these in your John journal. If you're keeping your John journal with you, um, I would love for you to write these down just to, to, to think about them. The first one is this. Always take seriously the call of the Holy Spirit. Always take seriously the call of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is at the root of everything good in your life. We can argue about that later if you disagree. But I believe I'm right. And the second thing is this. Always be obedient to the prompting and the direction of the Holy Spirit. Always be obedient to the prompting and the direction of the Holy Spirit. Because we can't predict or control it, or when we can't predict and control something, we can simply be obedient to it. The Holy Spirit is prompting you to do something, and it seems like, oh, I, I don't know, I, I don't know if this feels right. Trust it. Try it. Put it to work. You have to be obedient to the call. Okay, so we're moving on with the interaction. That was just a little side note, but I believe it's, it's important to us. Um, so Jesus has this explanation, right, of what it means to be in the kingdom of heaven, to understand it, that you have to be born again. And then there's this Holy Spirit thing that's working uh, to help you understand that. And you don't know where it's coming from, and you don't know where it's going. And, and, and if you're Nicodemus, you're like, what? Right? And that's exactly what he says. How can this be? In verse 9, how can this be, Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you don't understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. Is there any more judgmental phrase than you people? <laughs> right? Like, what? Jesus is really frustrated at this point, obviously. He says, I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not even believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, to the, so the Son of Man must also be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Okay, so the first verse is likely where you and I would be at this point. Nicodemus' response, how is this possible? 
But Jesus isn't interested in staying where he is at the moment. Like he's like, okay, clearly you're not going to get this, so let's just keep going on, right? Maybe you'll get it uh, as I explain to you more. And what Jesus is really trying to convey, though, is, is something really critical. Uh, he's starting to help Nicodemus understand that uh, just simply being religious is not going to be good enough to earn God's salvation. And that was the thing. Like, like Jessica talked about the money prison. Nicodemus is trapped in the religion prison because he's been trained his whole life to uphold this law. So just think about the thing that you are willing to die on the hill for most. The thing that you're like, nothing will change my mind on this. And Jesus is putting his finger right in that. Right? Bold. Crazy. Like he is being so aggressive right now. And so you could understand why Jesus is, or why Nicodemus is confused, but he doesn't he doesn't leave him hanging. I love this part of the interaction because to the, to the, uh, to the, under, or, or to the person who might not understand the significance of the history, which we'll get into in just a second, what Jesus says about uh, ascending and descending to heaven and then the snake thing, which we'll get into in just a second, that just sounds like something that Jesus is saying. But what he's doing is he's actually connecting with Nicodemus here. So here's why. So the first statement that he says is he says that no one has ascended into heaven, um, but the Son of Man is essentially descending to earth. So if you think about what Nicodemus is tethered to, rules and religion, right? What he's trying to do is he's trying to make himself good enough to earn God's favor. Now, in his day, that made sense. But to us, of course, we're like, what is he doing? Of course we can't. But he doesn't understand that. And so Jesus is saying, listen, you don't have to work. There is no amount of good works and right rules and right actions and laws that you can follow that will allow you to ascend into heaven. Instead, me, Jesus, who, you know, he's still trying to figure this out. Jesus descended down into Nicodemus's world, to our world. That's different than any other religion. All other religions and even some skewed versions of Christianity would say, if you just do enough things, eventually you'll be good enough. But Jesus is saying something completely different. He changed everything. He came so that we didn't have to work for it. He came so that all we had to do was follow him. It's incredible. And his response is starting to clue Nicodemus in on the idea that he is not just a man of God. He is God in man, right? Like that's the theme of this opening section of John is he's trying to convince people that he's not just a man with, with special powers, that he's God in the flesh. He's God on earth. So he's like got Nicodemus's wheels turning and then he caps it off with an even more incredible statement that Nicodemus would have been like, wow. So he says this in verse 14. In 15, he says, and as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. So at this point, if it's you and I, let's just put ourselves in Nicodemus' situation, right? Um, well, maybe it's just you. You're sitting there. You're like, clearly Jesus is something special about him. So you're like, I want to talk to this guy. And he tells you um, that you have to be born again. You're like, I don't know what that means. He tells you that, um, that there's this Holy Spirit, this weird spirit that's going to come and make you alive. 
right? And, th and then he goes on to say some of like the craziest things about like a snake being lifted up on a pole in the wilderness. So you're like going into the conversation thinking, I'm going to get something awesome out of this. And now you're just bewildered. <laughs> you're just flat out like, what in the world is Jesus saying? But for Nicodemus, it's actually very different because what Jesus is referring to is a story out of Numbers chapter 21, right? Who, that life verse from Numbers 21, anybody, right? You memorize that chapter of the Bible for sure, right? No, not at all, right? That is like buried in like the, the history of the Jewish tradition, right? Like here, here we have a section of the Bible that only people like Nicodemus uh, would have had any interaction with. Like they memorize it, they know it, it's super important to them. And so Jesus pulls a reference out of there. And essentially what he's referencing is, is the Israelites are on a journey and they have to take the long route, not the first time, as you probably know if you've read that section of the Bible. Uh, and what do they do? They become a bunch of whiners again. Like they're literally whining to each other about God and Moses. Like two, like, I mean, God and Moses, like the two most prominent people in their minds. And they're just like, what are they doing? Why, woe is me? You know, and so God's like, okay, whatever. We've been through this before. So what does he do? He sends snakes to bite them. Get what you deserve, right? <laughs> that would be my attitude. Luckily, God's better than all of us. So he sends snakes to bite them and they start biting them and they actually start dying. And so they're panicking and they actually... Uh, repent, and they turn, and they're like, God, what do we do? And so God tells Moses, he says exactly what it says here. He says, put a snake on a pole and lift it up, and anyone who looks at it will be healed and not die. They're like, okay. So he puts the snake on the pole, lifts it up, and people who are looking at it will be, will be saved from their ultimate destruction. So let's start to draw the parallels here. I'm going to draw three parallels for you that Nicodemus would be connecting at this point. Like Jesus hasn't been crucified yet, so he hasn't seen this, but if he had, he would understand it in this light as we can. The first parallel is to the snake and sin, right? We all know that in the creation story, our sin and death is tied directly to the serpent. And essentially what Jesus is starting to lay down is that we're all snake-bitten, and the result of that snake bite, the result of those bites is our ultimate death and destruction. So he starts to make this parallel. He says, okay, Moses had the snake and, and then there's sin, right? So we have these things in our lives that are causing us death. Then the second one is the pull. And he would parallel that to the cross, right? So the remedy for these snakes bite, snake bites was to lift the snake up on the pole, which if you're familiar with modern medicine, the snake is actually the symbol for modern medicine, right? And so this parallel that he's, that he's drawing uh, is that he has a snake and healing lifted up on a pole, and our healing would be Jesus lifted up on the cross. So you have this pole that the snake's being lifted up on, and now Jesus is making a parallel. He's saying, your healing is going to be lifted up on a pole as well. It's going to be Jesus on the cross. But then the most important part of this, this situation that we can parallel is the fact that all you had to do was look and be healed, to look and believe. So we have this parallel now where the pole, the snake, 
has been lifted up on the pole and the people have to just look at it and then they will be healed. And we, over here as Christians now, as Christ followers, we have a sacrifice in Jesus lifted up on a pole and the only thing we need to do is see and believe. To see and believe. Can you start to see how brilliant this interaction is with Jesus that Nicodemus is having? I mean, if in, in our context, to look at it now and see what Jesus is saying is life-altering, world-shattering. And you know what the best part is for me? Is that he did it in a way that Nicodemus was very familiar with. He did it in a way that he would understand. That's pretty incredible. It, it helps me with confidence say that he will do the same thing for you and I. He's not going to leave you confused. He's going to come down into your world. He's going to speak your language. He's going to do so, as he mentioned previously, through the Holy Spirit. So it's at this point where we go from you know, this sort of bizarre interaction that Nicodemus is having, but clearly a significant one that, that, that Jesus is like, he is laying out some significant um, I guess, uh, patterns, as we would call them, patterns of theology, belief systems now. But to, but to Jesus, it was just truth. And to Nicodemus, it was life-altering. And so it's fitting that the very next verse is literally the greatest verse in the Bible. Uh, Pastor Kelly and I are using a, 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 one of the studies that we're using to help um, with this teaching is by a man named Elmer Towns. And he titled this, um, he just titled it The Greatest Verse. And so I wanted to read it to you. It's John 3.16. You're probably really familiar with it. But he has these little subtitles after each phrase. And I loved it. So I wanted to share it with you. It says this, for God, the greatest being. So the greatest degree loved the greatest affection, the world, the greatest object of his love, that he gave the greatest act, his one and only son, the greatest treasure, that whoever, the greatest company, believes the greatest level of trust, in him, the greatest object of our faith, shall not perish the greatest act of salvation, but have the greatest assurance, eternal, the greatest promise, life, the greatest blessing. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That is a great promise, is it not? But it doesn't just stop there. He goes on to say, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. For whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. And this is the verdict. Light has come into the world but people loved darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Put plainly, life with Jesus equals no condemnation. Life without Jesus, condemnation. Bold 
plain as day, not popular in our culture, but true. Nicodemus is, is going to Jesus to find out what is true. He's trying to get to the bottom of the story. And this is the bottom of the story for us. That God so loved the world that he gave his only son on our behalf. And all we have to do is believe in him. That whoever, meaning literally whoever, believes in him will have everlasting life. He came not to condemn us. He came to save us. Isn't that so contrary to how we feel, like how people feel about Christianity sometimes? It's so contrary that he didn't come to to condemn the world, but he came to save it. And yet, some people, all that they just cannot get their head around that idea. They can't get their head around the idea that Jesus is for them, not against them. What is it about the narrative that they're hearing, that they're seeing, that they're experiencing, that tells them anything contrary to what Jesus himself is saying in this passage? I said it before, and I continue to stick by this thought. Pastor Kelly said it earlier as well. We have the greatest story ever to tell. We have have the greatest story ever to tell. So the question I ask myself is, how can I be a better storyteller? How can I be a better storyteller? Jesus says that he came into this world to be a light, to shine in the darkness, to expose a world overcome by sin. And people who want to live apart from God, who are dead, will continue to chase the darkness. But people who who look upon and believe in him, right? We're not trying to ascend to him. He's descended to us. So we simply look upon and believe in him and we have true life. We have true life. We are saved. Our salvation is found in that very idea. Life with Jesus is life. Life without Jesus is death. So let me encourage you this. When you choose to believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit will begin to work in your life and he will change you. He will make you a different person. This is made true or made a light of in 2 Corinthians 5.13. So I'm going to read this and then we're going to finish up. But I just wanted to share this with you as we wrap up. This is Paul talking to the church at Corinth. He says, if we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all. Again, just paralleling what Jesus said with the whoever. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we were once regarded, though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All of this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf 
be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. You know, the greatest lie that we buy into as Christians, as Christ followers, is that playing it safe is the way we should live. That trying to control everything is the safest play we have. And I love Jessica's testimony because I had no idea what she was going to say. But my goodness, did she hit it on the head when she said the things of, when I have money, I'm in control. When I don't, I'm not. And it's the same thing for whatever that thing is that holds you in your prison. If I have this, I'm okay. And if I don't, I'm not. If it's anything other than Jesus Christ, it's not real. It's not real. That's the lie. Where the truth of following Jesus is this. The safest, honestly, the safest play that you can live in your entire life is to risk everything for the cause of Christ and to do so through the prompting of the Holy Spirit. To do so through working out in your life what God is calling you to do. It may sound crazy to you. It may sound foreign to you. It sounds scary probably, but that's what he wants. Right? He, we are his ambassadors. We are committed to this message of reconciliation. So here's my, my prayer for us, and then, and then we're going to wrap up. I want to read this to you, and then I'll finish out with a prayer. But this is, this is what I'm going to pray this week for everyone at Center Church. It'll be on the screen. May the light of Jesus shine brightly in and around your life. I pray that the love of Jesus would compel you to chase after the godly desires of your heart. It's the thing he's put in you that you're just not sure and you're just too like, oh, I don't know. And I just pray that you would chase that. I pray that you would chase that. And finally, that the Holy Spirit would have primary influence in your life as you go about your days doing what you get to do. I'll say this about this, this passage. There's so much more that we could have gone over today. But I really believe this to be true about what I, I, I had this like weird nervous energy, not like I'm nervous to be up here, but I just was like, man, I don't know if we're going to get there. You know, I just don't know if everything being said is going to get there. But I trust wholeheartedly that the Holy Spirit is poking at each and every person in this space today and saying, I'm just waiting for you to chase it. I'm just waiting for you to do that thing that I've been wanting you to do that I've been telling you to do for this whole time, however long it's been. I'm just waiting for you to have the faith to chase it. Let's pray. God, thanks for today. And uh, man, we're just so thankful for a message like this where you have reminded us that you sent your son on our behalf. The, uh, the, the grace and the mercy, the freedom that we get to live within as Christ followers is incredible. And I pray that if there's a person in this room that is not following you, God, that you would help them understand that it's a simple choice to look and believe, to believe in the name of Jesus as the Son of God, and that when they do so, the Holy Spirit will begin to work in their life, and they will be a changed person for the better. God, I am thank you for that reality in my life in the life of people around me, like my friend Pastor Kelly, my wife Thea, our friend Brandy, God, the people who lead this church, who lead these ministries, Jessica, Patrick, God. 
God, I pray blessing over this church. As you, are, as you are doing something, as you are preparing us to take whatever the next step is, God, I pray that we would follow that prompting, that we would not be scared because the safest play is risking it all for you. I believe that, God. I believe that would ring true in the lives of everyone at Center Church, that we would take seriously the call to be your ambassador, to love people well, to show people the light of Jesus. We could do so with confidence that we're not going to fail. You will not allow that to happen. When we're working on your behalf, God, we're, we're really alive. I pray that would be true.